Hey, friends and fellow walkers, great to be with you today. I couldn't be more excited for this show. A while back, a couple listeners of this show reached out to me and requested that we engage in a conversation of how to love and care for our transgendered community better. So when you ask, I try to go as big as possible. So today on the show, transgendered pastor and world-renowned speaker, Paula Stone-Williams. If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus, then we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value. The Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? It is a new year, so let's get our health and nutrition on track. And who better to help us with that than Rise Nutrition? You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. And just for Jesus Never Ran listeners, you can click on their link in the show notes and get a free wellness profile. That's Rise Nutrition. Find them on Facebook at Rise Menominee. That's Rise with a Z. Like I said, so excited about this conversation, having Paula Stone Williams on today and actually having her son, Jonathan Williams, on next week. So let's jump right into it. World-renowned speaker, one of the foremost voices on gender issues in our country today, Paula Stone Williams. My name is Paula Stone Williams, and I am one of the co-pastors at Left Hand Church in Longmont, Colorado. I'm also an international speaker on issues of gender equity. I've done four TED Talks, and they've had uh, together over six million views. So I do a lot of corporate, university, conference speaking all over the United States and Europe primarily, although also in Asia recently. And all of that is because I am a transgender woman. I just uh, transitioned six years ago. Before that, I was the CEO of a large religious nonprofit. I was the host of a national television show. I was the editor-at-large of a national magazine. I was on the preaching team of two megachurches, one in Philadelphia and one in the Denver area. I was an adoption caseworker. I was a seminary professor, and I lost all of my jobs within seven days of coming out. The organization that I directed, I was CEO of one of the nation's largest church planting organizations. I had been with them for 35 years, had seen them grow from a budget of $167,000 to a budget of $4 million, from just working in the New York City area to working nationwide and then worldwide. And we grew beautifully, amazingly, became very, very effective at what we did, and then came out and lost every one of my jobs within seven days, because in all 50 states of the United States, you cannot be fired for being transgender, but in all 50, you can be fired if you're transgender and you work for a religious corporation. 
Paula, I would be lying if I told you that I was surprised by that in the least. I certainly am not. That's exactly what I would have expected. Which leads me to my first question, which is very simply, why do you think it is that the church, especially the evangelical church, has chosen the LGBTQ community to be, I mean, I would argue, the main group of people that they are against? It's what the fundamentalist forms of the desert religions do. You know, they create enemies that don't exist. You know, and it doesn't matter which one of the Abrahamic religions you're talking about, all of them are desert religions. Well, they began as religions of scarcity. And fortunately, all three of them in their non-fundamentalist forms, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, have developed very generous uh, expressions of theology. But in their fundamentalist forms, they have a tendency to create enemies that don't exist. And right now in the fundamentalist and evangelical Christian world, the enemy, one of the two enemies uh, is the LGBTQ plus populations. You'd already mentioned how this cost you professionally and how quickly it cost you professionally. Do you mind sharing a little bit about how this affected you personally, the relationships in your life, maybe both inside and outside of the evangelical church world? For me, coming out was instant departure from that world. I knew thousands and thousands of people. I've heard from 60 of them in a nice way. I've met, I think, 20 or thereabouts. I've met six more than once. So that world completely and utterly rejected me. On the other hand, of my non-evangelical friends, I lost none, not any, not one, not one friend. My doctorate's in pastoral counseling. I lost not one single client, including my evangelical clients, interestingly. So that world completely rejected me. And very early on, I tried to make my way into the mainline Protestant world and found that I was pretty much being rejected there because they were suspicious of the fact that I had been a pastor in megachurches and that I had taught at evangelical seminaries. And so I felt like a person without a country. I had one other trans professor at a West Coast seminary who took a look at my curriculum vitae and at the evaluations I had from students in the last doctoral course I had taught. And he said, oh, I know I can get you on as adjunct at my school. And he could not get me on as adjunct because of my background. And I also was fairly critical of the mainline church. I was working for the Center for Progressive Renewal, which works with five different mainline denominations. And, you know, the truth is most of those are declining. And if they continue their current levels of decline, they won't be here 25 years from now. And so I was thrilled then when I found the post-evangelical world. Uh, my first introduction to it was Highlands Church in Denver, then Denver Community Church, I was on the regular preaching team at Highlands, spoke regularly at Denver. DCC is actually how I made my connections with the TED world. My son pastors Forefront Church in New York. And those three churches actually combined to start Left Hand Church. Uh, I worked a good bit with a lot of the other post-evangelical churches around the country through what was the open organization and now is with and have uh, greatly benefited from that. I'm on the board of uh, Launchpad Ministries, which is starting new post-evangelical churches around the country. The thing I love is that now when I preach, I mean, I was made to preach. It has always brought great joy to my life. And now I can preach without hesitation every single thing I believe. And we're a new church with, um, you know, about 80 to 120 people who would call us home, but we have between 
1,500 and 2,000 viewers every week. A lot of that is because of my TED Talks and their popularity. Often our live services will have viewers from Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Brazil, Mexico, Canada, Ireland, England, and most all of that has come because of the reach of my TED Talks. But I love that we're in a position to be able to preach a generous Christianity. I am firmly a Christian. I actually do uh, believe that following Jesus is uh, uh, the best way to live. And we're a church that defines ourselves pretty simply, that our job is to love God, love our neighbor, and love ourselves. And so I find great, great strength in that. I think every person of faith, every faith community should find that same strength in trying to love each other and trying to love God. Now, Paula, one of the things I love about you is you just have an absolutely brilliant mind. It's obvious when you're speaking that there's just such a huge knowledge base behind what you're saying. And there is definitely some misunderstandings, some ignorance surrounding what it means to be transgendered. Would you mind sharing with us some of the science behind being transgendered? Gender dysphoria is what it's called in the DSM-5. And it's a condition that does not affect very many people. It's about 0.58% of the population. So there are not a lot of us. We don't really know what causes it. We're quite sure that it is prenatal. We're not sure whether or not it is genetic. There are some recent studies that indicate there may be a genetic component to it. Uh, we know that most likely it's something that happens in the second trimester of a pregnancy. So the body that is created, every fetus begins as a female, and then halfway through the first trimester, half of, uh, of all of us receive an androgen wash that turns uh, that particular fetus male. And by the end of the first trimester, the gender has been determined, except for that segment of the population who are intersex, which is actually a larger segment of the population that you might think as high as 1%, uh, which means that they have ambiguous uh, sexual organs, a number of different conditions, uh, androgen and sensitivity disorder, Klein-Felter syndrome, etc. But during the second trimester, uh, the body develops the third trimester, the brain develops its connection to the body. And we know that there are, in fact, more than one condition in which a brain does not develop a connection to the body that has been created. In fact, there's one rather uh, well-known but unusual condition in which the brain does not make a connection to a limb of the body. Virtually always it's a limb, it's an arm or a leg. And so the brain sees it as a foreign body. And so the, the brain is constantly saying that's not supposed to be there. Like you or I would feel if we had a log sticking out of our chest. Our brain would constantly be saying, hey, there's a log sticking out of your chest. It doesn't belong there. For these people, that's what their brain is telling them, and it causes incredible distress. Well, the assumption is that something similar has happened to us, those of us who are transgender, that during that second trimester, for some reason, the brain does not create a connection to the body that exists. So from the time you were a tiny thing, you had this consistent, persistent sense that you were not in the right body. And you have a lot of transgender children who experience it as a very traumatic experience. And these are the children who generally need to transition very, very young. Also, interestingly, uh, these children are almost always transgender girls, uh, which means that they were identified on their birth certificate as a male, 
but they end up then in fact i have a neighbor here whose child's first comment was uh, first phrase ever spoken was mommy i a girl well, the rest of us have a sense from as early as we can remember in my case three or four that we're in the wrong gender but it's not extremely psychological distressful now with all of that extremely important and helpful information in our back pocket now would you share with us a little bit of your personal experience uh, so in my case i thought the gender fairy would arrive by the time i was uh, in school and when it didn't happen it was like oh well uh, you know i didn't hate being a boy i just knew i wasn't one and i would pray um, most nights that i would wake up a girl the next day i was just as comfortable with girls as i was with boys didn't become a problem until puberty, which is rather typical for transgender women, because at that point, then your body begins developing in ways you don't want it to develop. And it's also at that point that you become a sexual being and you do not like the way in which your sexuality is developing because your sexuality feels not natural to you at all. It feels like an intrusion. Male sexuality did not ever feel comfortable, appropriate, or natural to me. It felt like something that I literally despised. I mean, I was a sexual being and married, and my wife and I had a wonderful intimate relationship, but it was never what my soul knew that intimacy was supposed to be. I know on this show we talk a lot about faith and church, evangelical church, etc. But the reality is when we're talking about people who are transgendered, there is a lack of acceptance inside and outside of faith circles. It's a bit universal, I believe. It is a difficult diagnosis in that most of the world is not very accepting of the transgender population. And so there's a 41% suicide attempt rate of those who are a transgender primarily pre-transition. And that number is consistent whether you're talking about trans men or trans women. I'm a trans woman, uh, that's male to female. Trans man is female to male. Uh, what transgender people are not, we're not uh, drag queens. Drag queens are gay guys with too much style for one gender. Uh, that's not us. We also are not uh, sexual cross-dressers. Uh, sexual cross-dressing is a paraphilia. Uh, paraphilia is what we used to call a, uh, a fetish. It is uh, finding sexual satisfaction in wearing the clothing of the opposite sex. And that is also not what it means to be transgender. Being transgender is a consistent, persistent feeling that the gender on your birth certificate does not match the gender that your brain and your soul feel themselves to be. It's a, it's a difficult diagnosis. And it generally gets worse with the passing of time, not better. And in my case, I did not want to transition because I did not want to do that to my wife and I didn't want to do it to my children. And I came to the point that I uh, was struggling greatly. And in my case, it came as a sense of call, the first real sense of call I ever experienced in my life. I was watching my favorite television show of all time, Lost. And there came a time in the final season when Jack, the protagonist of the show, realizes he's been called by God to die. And I literally cried all the way till dawn because I knew I had been called to die. And that for me was the point at which I knew I was going to have to transition. And we'd never told the children. In fact, there were literally three people on earth who knew, well, four, 
my wife and um, my best friend who's a therapist and my therapist and my wife's therapist. And uh, so we finally then told the children and, and then about a year later told the organization that I worked with. And even then I was still hoping not to have to transition but it was a really strong sense of call. I really have only experienced a call twice in my life. Uh, once was to transition, and then the second, uh, interestingly, was the call to plant the church uh, in Longmont, to plant Left Hand Church. Uh, both of those felt like a strong sense of call, um, a call under the hero's journey. You know, the hero's journey is defined by Joseph Campbell, where an ordinary citizen is called on to an extraordinary journey on the road of trials. And, Initially, you reject that call because, hey, it's the road of trials. Uh, but eventually, uh, a person comes into your life that gives you the strength to be able to answer that call. And so uh, that, for me, is, is what happened. That is so fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. I would never in a million years consider this a situation of calling. But when you sit back and think about it, it makes a ton of sense. In a lot of situations, we wouldn't think of gender, sexuality, things like that as a calling. But because of our current reality, I think personally that makes a ton of sense. Now, on this podcast, we talk a ton about just struggles, questions, doubts with church, with faith in general. And when discussing the LGBTQ community, this is just a space where the church gets behind it and it has gotten really ugly and really discouraging for a lot of us. You find a lot of naysayers about uh, the transgender population uh, because interestingly, the evangelical world has chosen two social issues that are everything to them. One is being against a woman's right to choose and the other is the LGBTQ population. I find it ironic and interesting that they've chosen two subjects that cost their leaders absolutely nothing to hold. Uh, evangelicalism is 100% male-driven. All 100 of the largest churches in the United States are male-led. And none of them, by the way, are uh, LGBTQ-affirming, though, though very few of them will tell you that now. They know that the culture has moved on. It's just that their money hasn't. That world has resoundingly rejected us and taken a strong position on abortion as well. But then, you know, you think about it, they're male leaders. Only 3% of them uh, are gay or trans, and none of them are going to have an abortion. And if they chose a subject like poverty, well, then that was that is going to cost them something personally. So instead, they uh, choose, I think, rather conveniently, a subject that uh, has no personal cost to them. And they have in today's culture, a very loud megaphone. And so they have been able to elevate some voices like Paul McHugh, who's a kind of a standalone psychiatrist affiliated with Johns Hopkins and an embarrassment to the Johns Hopkins community that says that uh, gender dysphoria is not a legitimate diagnosis. And they use the figure all the time that 35% of those who are transgender post-transition have serious suicidal ideation. Um, well, that's actually not true. Uh, the truth is that 92% of those who transition are very, very happy in their new gender. 8% are not. If you isolate that 8%, 35% of those people have serious post-transition suicidal ideation. And let's take a look at that 8%. Why do they have 
post-transition suicidal ideation? Is it because they don't like their new body? Isolating just that 8% that are not happy that they've transitioned? Nope, it's not that they don't like their new body. 96 out of 100 of them like their new body. Four out of 100 of them don't like their new body. So what's going on with the other 96 out of 100? It's three things. First of all, it's their loss of family, friends, job, way to earn a living. They lose their entire world uh, because that world has rejected them. Uh, second is that they don't pass in their new gender. And that's huge if you're transgender. A world in which the world can easily tell that you're transgender uh, means that everyone who's opposed to you and, and your people is going to make you aware of that constantly. And so those of us who do pass in our new gender, which means that when we're out in public, people have no idea that we're transgender. Um, it's much, much, much easier for us than it is for others. So the inability to pass in one's new gender, which by the way is, is a specific issue for trans uh, women. Trans men, for the most part, uh, there are massive changes that take place with testosterone. And so they usually have no difficulty passing in their new gender. But the biggest reason for post-transition suicidal ideation is uh, the internalization of transphobia. So for instance, trans teens whose parents are not supportive of them, of them have a 13 times higher incidence of uh, suicide attempts than their peers. They are the most at-risk group in America. And it is in fact that internalization of transphobia that is so devastating to them. And so the statistics they go with that people are not happy post-transition is simply wrong. It's dealing with a very small segment of the population. And when you look at why they're not happy, 96% of those people aren't happy, not because of their new body, but because of the way they're treated by conservative American culture, and particularly by religiously conservative American culture. I just want to make sure that I say this very, very clearly in response to what you just said, Paula, that the problem, the primary problem with internal struggles and suicidal tendencies of trans people is not because of anything that's going on inside of their bodies, but because of the way they are treated by people in our society, specifically, as you pointed out, Paula, religious people, people of faith. I believe that a lot of times people have turned a blind eye or a blind ear to the reality of the struggles with trans people and the suicide attempts that we hear about and things like that. But the reality is, is that this is our problem. This is a problem that's easily fixable. If this was something that was completely internal, then we'd be dealing with a bigger challenge, but it's not. This is an issue that is all external. So it's how we treat one another that ultimately matters. And that that's a lot to take in, but it's also a little bit encouraging because it means that there's hope for a better future. Paul, as somebody who lives as a transgendered woman, and not only lives as a transgendered woman, but lives as a transgendered pastor, do you think there's any hope for things getting better? Do you think that tomorrow looks better than today? You know, you take a look, we, we don't have statistics on the trans population. We have to extrapolate out from the LGBTQ plus population. 
if you take a look at marriage equality, 83% of the Jewish population is supportive of marriage equality in the U.S. 70% of the Catholic population is supportive of marriage equality. And not their leadership, certainly not their bishops, but the population. 51% of the traditionally African-American churches are supportive of um, marriage equality. Between 62 and 60 66% of all of the mainline Protestant denominations are um, supportive of marriage equality. 36% of evangelicals and 16% of Jehovah's Witnesses are supportive of marriage equality. But interestingly, in that most recent Pew Research study, even though only 36% of evangelicals are supportive of marriage equality, that's up from just 26% eight years earlier. And 51% of millennial evangelicals are supportive of marriage equality. So quite clearly, the population that uh, makes life the most difficult for us is in fact a religious population. I do a lot of speaking at universities and I get paid big bucks. I have offered to go to Christian universities um, pro bono, in fact, paying my own way. I have had one school take me up on it. I had another school ask me to come and then contact me a couple of weeks in advance and say, well, we're actually going to add a second person to the program. Um, she'll be doing a keynote after you and she'll be saying that um, being transgender is not a legitimate identity. And I said, yeah, I don't think I can do that. Um, so Christian University in Pennsylvania. I, and they said, well, why not? And I said, well, if I were black, would you have someone speak after me who said um, black is not a legitimate identity? And they actually could not see the, the parallel with that at all. So I won't go places I'm not going to be safe, but I'll go anyplace else because I'm convinced the only way we change the population on this subject is by narrative and by proximity. If we can hear one another's stories, get close enough to hear them, I'm convinced that's what will change the horrible polarization we have in our nation today. That is super fascinating that you point that out. And that's not the first time that has been said by a guest on our podcast either, because it's so easy to be against something that is out there that's far away from us. But as soon as it comes closer, then we have to deal with it on a much more intimate level. And I know that's true of a lot of people that maybe took stances of believing that being gay, being trans, being in the LGBTQ community was a sin. And then all of a sudden it becomes something that's really close to them, somebody they love, somebody they know really well. And all of a sudden they have to deal with the reality of that. And many of those people that I've talked to have changed their stance on it because suddenly it becomes very intimate and very close. So, all right, Paula, point blank, will the church ever change in their dealings and beliefs and understandings of the LGBT community? You know, poor Galileo spent the last years of his life under house arrest, forced there by the Catholic Church, uh, because he believed that the earth revolved around the sun. When's the last time you saw a religious body teaching that the earth does not revolve around the sun? The church was very late in finally taking a stand on slavery. The church was late in allowing people into leadership in the church who hadn't been divorced and remarried. Uh, the church was late in accepting transracial families. I mean, the, the church is consistently the last place to change. But when the church realizes the culture has moved on, the church isn't stupid. It eventually comes around 
and embraces that change. On the issue of slavery, it was 150 years for that to happen. On the issue of marriage equality, it's 20 years. Churches don't move that fast. So how long does it take for evangelical churches to become open and affirming? I think you can look right now at all the mega churches in America. They won't admit where they, where they stand on this issue. It's because they know the culture has already moved on. It's just their money hasn't. The question is, how long does it take? Wow, what an incredible and important conversation. I cannot thank Paula Stone-Williams enough for coming on the show this week. And don't forget that next week we're going to have Paula's son, Jonathan, who is a pastor at a progressive church out in New York City. Jonathan's going to be on the show next week. To keep track of Paula and learn more about what she's got going, just go to her website at paulawilliams.com. Also, I'm going to put a link to all of her TED Talks in the show notes. And one of those TED Talks is a conversation between her and her son, Jonathan, which you're not going to want to miss. Of course, the way that you can best support this podcast is simply by subscribing to it, giving it a five-star rating, and writing a review. Until next time, keep walking. Keep walking.